welcome to the Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of this text is actually an extension of what came before it. So yesterday, as we were looking at this idea of really judging one another within the church, that's the continuation into chapter 6. And it starts with this big idea. I mean, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? I mean, are you aware of that? I don't know that we as the church talk about this one too often. That you, as a child of God, as a co-heir of Christ, with Christ of the eternal kingdom, you, you will judge the world. 
You are to care for creation. And that's, that's part of caring for creation. Part of the rule is to settle the disputes that come up. Part of the rule is to figure out who has done right and who has done wrong. We, we as the church, are placed into this position of authority in the judgment. We don't know a whole lot about this. We don't know what it's going to look like because this is future tense and we don't, we're just not there yet. Even the line in verse 3 about judging angels, I mean, wow. This is, this is incredible and impactful stuff. The point Paul is making with it is, if God is entrusting you in the judgment to judge over creation and angels themselves, can't you handle the fights you have with one another? I mean, think of the scope of that. Judge the whole world. Judge this little dispute the two of you have. You're supposed to judge the whole world and you can't even do this little thing? I say this to your shame. That contrast, what he had said before, previously was that chapter 4 or chapter 5. Um, Paul was having the discussion using some sarcastic language. Uh, I believe that was chapter 4. Turn back real quick here in, in the Bible. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Chapter 4, verse 14. But here he did. Shame on you. How can you, how can you live like this? How can you not... Settle disputes amongst yourselves. Why do you have to take them outside of the church? Why do you have to take them to outsiders, to non-Christians? Question we can ask our children then, how does Paul want, how does he encourage us to handle problems between Christians? And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. So I'm not going to quite give the answer just yet. One of the first things is verse 7. Don't sue each other. Here you actually have a New Testament command and instruction that we are not to sue one another within the church. If another Christian harms you, you cannot sue them. That's pretty harsh in our sue-happy culture that we live in. Somebody looks at you wrong today in our country, you sue them. Not the Christian. This is not to be your way. It really is. It's a shame that this text is not in our lectionary readings. We have a three-year cycle that we read in church, and you know there's just not enough room in three years even to include every part of Scripture. But for how divided we are, how, how lawsuit intense we are, how we take everything to the courts rather than settling them between each other. This text is so needed uh, among the church today. But also verse 7, instead of suing, which would already be a defeat for you, you're already defeated if you sue. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So somebody harms you. And the Christian response is to do what? It's a question for your children. This is one that they need to get, and it's one that you need to get as well. The Christian response is not revenge. 
It's not retaliation. It's not getting even. It's not getting something for your troubles. The Christian response is to look to Jesus. When the world harmed him, when the world wronged him, what did he do? As the world was beating him to death and asphyxiating him on the cross, Jesus cried out with what little voice he could muster and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The ministry of Jesus Christ is reconciliation. It is the forgiveness of sins. And so as Christians, as part of his body, his church, when we are wronged by another Christian, what do we do? We forgive. And it's over. It's done. It's behind us. There is no repayment. Demanded, at least. When you are wronged. Now, if you wrong someone else and you're, you know, you ask their forgiveness and you are forgiven, that's a wonderful thing. And it is good, right, and salutary that you should restore what you have caused harm. I mean, if you, you borrowed your neighbor's car and you totaled it, yeah, the right thing to do is to, is to help repay that, that loss, that damage that you help, that you incurred for them. And that's commandment stuff, as we talk about Luther's explanation in the small catechism that we should help our neighbor to protect his property and his income. But the one wrong doesn't demand it. The one wrong simply forgives. This is how Christ lived. This is how we are to live. The next paragraph begins with a rhetorical question. Don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Then you get the whole list of all these different things. But verse 11 comes, and such were some of you. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were drunkards, etc. Were. But you were washed. This is so important for us to see. This is a text about unrepentance. The unrepentant do not enter the kingdom of God. We are not defined by our sins. We are defined by our Savior. This is one of the troubles that we see so much in our culture around us, and it's one that our youth in particular have such a hard time with, because it's what they're taught in the education system in this community now. They are taught things like self-esteem. They are taught to look inside themselves for something to be proud about, for something to stand up for, for something to identify themselves. And so you identify yourself with the things that you enjoy, the things that you love. You identify yourself with with your behaviors and your actions and your abilities. And none of that is true. None of that is true for the Christian. We identify ourselves in one way. We are Christians. Our identity is found in Christ. Our identity comes from the one who created us and who then suffered and died to save us from ourselves. That's it. 
You have worth, you have value simply because Jesus declared it so with his word and with his action. The world cannot give you any worth or value. Your own sinful self cannot give you any worth or value. Your creator can, and he has. Such a vital concept for us to be able to understand in the midst of the world that we live in in particular. The body is not meant to do with it whatever we please. It's the next section. But rather, the body belongs to the Lord. And there's going to be a really interesting connection there to chapter 7. But we'll get to that tomorrow. First, Paul's going to quote a couple of what must have been popular sayings at the time. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul takes these popular quotes and really rejects them. All things are lawful for me. You can picture the Christian saying that, that in Christ all my sins are forgiven, in Christ I'm free to do whatever I want. Christians say that even today, and it's not true. You are now a slave of Christ. You are not free. You're not free to do whatever you please. You are free to follow God's will. There's a giant difference between the two. Not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up the church. Not everything builds up your faith. Get the gospel promise in 14. The Father raised the Son, and He will raise you also. I mean, how wonderful is that? And Paul's going to even have to unpack this in this this book. I mean, this is chapter fifteen, so it's it's a week away. But they had come to the point where they many of them had stopped believing in the resurrection, and so this plug is here for a good reason. Your body is not just this thing that's here today and eventually gone tomorrow that doesn't really matter. Your body matters. Jesus died and rose again for your body. This goes against the Gnostic idea too, which is not a big problem at the point Paul's writing, but it's one coming within the generation's time. And that's the idea that everything physical is evil and the spiritual is good. This is a good text to rebuke that as well, as John does when John writes his gospel around 90 AD. The body will be raised, so take care of your body. That's going to be verse 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Take care of your body because it is God's. He has, as it says in verse 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought for with a price. Jesus' blood has bought your body, so take care of it. Glorify God in your body. That is, make the things that you do point to Christ. The language in the middle of that that I just skipped over briefly here um, would be hard to unpack with really little children. But it is a text, this idea of marriage to a prostitute. This is something that you need to unpack with your kids. 
my suggestion is that you would unpack it with your children before you're comfortable unpacking it with your children. Let me, let me explain that. So the culture that we live in is hypersexualized. Sex is everywhere. And not just the, the slogan, sex sells. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't go anywhere without it. You can't go on the internet and not see it. It's so rampant. And again, the identity conversation comes into that as well, especially for our, our kids as they get into even middle school, maybe even before that. So, yeah, prostitution and talking about that with your children would be an awkward conversation. But they're hearing about sexual things elsewhere. And we need to give them a biblical understanding of what marriage is. That it's a good gift. That there's something to look forward to. And this text unpacks that. I mean, it uses marriage language To have sex with a prostitute is, as verse 16 says, the two will become one flesh. That's marriage language from Genesis. The two become one flesh is getting married. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is one of many biblical passages that really talks about having sex as the act of getting married. It's not an idea that you won't see elsewhere. It's there. It's one that we don't believe in today. And you will rarely hear the church talk about that either. But it's here. And we have to ha handle that. You are instead, I mean, look at what the text is saying. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You are already joined. You are joined to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. That language is here. You are his. And you are not to go give yourself to another. That's going to impact also the reading for tomorrow with chapter 7. But tomorrow is tomorrow, so we'll talk about it then.